I'm Mark McGettigan, aka the FPL General. I've had three top 500 finishes during my time as a Fantasy Premier League manager, and I want to help you to be the very best fantasy manager you can be. So join me every week as I share my tips, tricks, and insight on the Athletics FPL podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual places, and listen ad-free on the Athletic app. Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. Welcome to Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, the boys are back after a very positive three-game tour of the United States where we beat Everton, Orlando City and Chelsea. <laughs> and at time of recording, it's 11 days to the big kickoff away at Palace on Friday week. Uh, joining me to discuss all things Arsenal are Art de Roche and welcoming her back from her summer sojourn. It's Amy Lawrence. Uh, hello, guys. Buongiorno. Woo. Welcome back, Amy. Hey. Welcome back, Bonjourno. Where have you been then, Amy? <laughs> it's all right, we worked it out. Uh, now, as you will know, Arsenal played three games in the States in uh, the M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore the and the Exploria Stadium and the Camping World Stadium in Orlando, Florida. Uh, obviously, that sort of niche stadium naming hasn't quite happened as much in this country, but I thought I'd ask our guests what they would rename the Emirates given the opportunity. Uh, Amy? I think it would have to be inspired by a local business. Uh, I was quite um, touched by the way that Arsenal did that campaign last year, supporting the supporters where they had the players going out doing brilliant adverts with local sort of pubs and hairdressers and car mechanics and so on. Um, so I was just thinking about our little local uh, parade of shops on Highbury Barn. I frequent the news agent quite a lot, the, the Lees News Stadium. Not sure that quite works. Um, it's a very good butcher, Godfrey's. What about your vegans and your vegetarians? Well, Amy, we've got we've got we've got an excellent um, De Mario is a fantastic uh, a deli, and we've got a, um, a, a, a organic fruit and veg shop. There's all sorts, but I thought I would plump for the cafe in Highbury Fields. Yeah, the Oasis Cafe Stadium. <laughs> I, like, I like the sound of that. Anyway, I'm mean, I'm thinking about all these different shops you got in Highbury Barn, and do you have like a rotating thing? You know, like James Bond has with his uh, with his. Um, number plates when he goes in he wants he doesn't want to be identified so every week the stadium gets a new name maybe they could roll over it's like a 15 minutes of fame type thing but all right the oasis cafe in Highbury but the oasis was it the oasis cafe stadium yeah. was it yeah okay yeah, the oasis okay cafe. it's in it's in Highbury fields and uh, uh if anyone's wandering through on their way to or from the game yaya who runs it it's been there for about 100 years and uh, he's very kind to all the local kids. And he's very, very kind to our dog, who quite often nicks a croissant. Right. Um, and, well, uh, we know Rocky to... pretty well. Yeah, so, uh, I have to go do. by We've sometimes and go, what do I owe you for the dog? And, he nicks uh, a croissant? Mm, yeah. Oh, they okay. leave them a bit too low for my liking, though. They're very temptation <laughs> to, to, you know, a Labrador snout. Yeah, okay. Art, what have you got? All the renaming stuff just kind of made me think about Pro Evolution Soccer because <laughs> on on their Arsenal are usually called North London Red. <laughs> so I was just trying to think of any 
Pez Stadium that I could, and the only one I can think of is the Konami Stadium. So, I the think Kunami for, for Stadium, yeah, for people who played PS2, Pez 2000, well, probably from Pez 4 up to like 2010, they'll they'll kind of uh, hopefully get that. And yeah, I'll go for that because that's all I can think of at the minute. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's perfectly fair enough. Amy, did you understand a single word of that sentence? <laughs> no, that art was just, just... <laughs> sort of quiet in the background. <laughs> no, fair enough. I did used to play pairs, but like I say, you can't use the real football team names, can you? Or has no. it changed now, by the way? Is it you still can't? Yeah, I, I haven't played the new one, so um, I couldn't tell you that. I'm afraid, sorry. <laughs> okay. Pez to me are just little sweets that come out of a kind of thing exactly. that you click. <laughs> a Pez dispenser, I think. So you don't understand that, do you, Art? No, I do, I do, I do. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I do. He's just saying that. Yeah, on, on our school trips, like when, when we'd go to the little corner shops, they had them, so it was all good. <laughs> on his school trips, Amy. It makes you feel great, doesn't it? Um, uh, for me, well... I was thinking of supermarkets, really, to be honest with you, uh, and and I don't I don't necessarily want it to be the Waitrose Stadium because <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe that has connotations. I mean, obviously you could go Fortnum and Masons if you really want to go up market. One of the supermarkets, I guess, that would probably be the best. Would we want to be playing in the Aldi or Lidl Stadium? Uh, it's no disrespect to Aldi or Lidl, of course. The Lidl Bakery Stadium. Stony, how have you how have you not looked up the name of a Brazilian supermarket? How, uh, <laughs> I mean, you missed the trick there. I did. Well, I'm sorry. Do you have them to hand, Amy? You know, <laughs> well, you were the one that was thinking of supermarkets. So yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Work. I probably Just... should have. I, no, but I don't want to favour the Brazilian boys over uh, the rest of our team. <laughs> do you know, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of uh, of team cohesion, Amy, which is what uh, uh, Mikel Arteta talks about quite a bit. Anyway, sounds like a good club night to me. <laughs> Team Cage, it's all right, actually, yes. Uh, some sad news, by the way, on Friday. Uh, the news broke that um, Maria Petri, uh, uh, very famous, really, Arsenal fan. Uh, if you didn't know her, you'd have certainly heard her at the stadium. She had um, a voice that cut through. Amy, I would say, didn't she, really? And we all heard her, come on, you gunners, uh, on a very regular basis, went to loads of games, home and away, the women's and the academy games. She fell in love with the club uh, in 1950. Uh, I was reading age 12. Amy, you didn't know her, did you? But you met her a few times. Of course. I mean, our paths crossed often because, yeah. you know, the the particularly the time when I was younger and would go pretty much everywhere, outlandish European trips she'd always be there and we'd always say hello but kind of for home games and stuff I mean unless you you sat in the vicinity and you know you have that connection with people who are near you but I think what was the marvel of it is that I mean I I think we were most aware of it probably at Highbury and you know to start with which was a compact 38,000 seater stadium let's not forget for the majority of the you know its latter life (laughs) and she would just pick a quiet moment and wherever you were in the ground, you could hear that voice. So I think most people knew her by voice before they knew her by sight or or to meet her. And Maria was, first of all, she was unbelievably positive. Like she, she was completely anti any form of criticism. So no matter how bad things ever were, or no matter how many people were getting on somebody's back, it, it just washed over. She just wasn't having it. She would just disarm anybody negative with this kind of big smile and 
a song that in, in, you know in praise and hagiography of of the club. You know, it marked her out almost as slightly eccentric because she had this sort of like ex, almost excessive positivity. It was it was untouchable. She didn't know how to be negative. It just wasn't in her system. And it was sort of really rather beautiful, actually. And she was quite a small woman, so she had this very big voice in quite a small frame. And there would just be a lull in the middle of a, you know, sometimes really important game with a lot of atmosphere. And then you just hear this, come on, you gunners! Come on, Arsenal! Come on, Arsenal! You know, which was her sort of trademark. And I guess it's with the advent of more visual stuff that has come with the modern age and social media and stuff that 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 Maria has become more recognisable sort of physically as well as in audio form. She always wore red. She was everywhere. And, you know, the club really was everything to her. And I love the fact that the club have recognised that in return. And I think they recognise that in her life as well which is did. really meaningful because quite often it's only when people are gone that you get the, you know, the real sense of how loved or how respected or how admired or, or missed someone could be. But I think she knew, you know, they made a fuss of her a lot, which is lovely, especially as she got older and it became a bit more difficult for her to get about, but she would still be there. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of like to think she'll always be there in spirit. Well, they did a nice tribute, didn't they? At the uh, at the game uh, the other day in in the United States, Archie oh, was also a big fan of the women's team as well. I mean, Arsenal ladies, as they were, were formed in '87. She got behind them straight away. Yeah, definitely. I think even uh, you see with the current players, they're very, I guess, involved with her. Even at the games, um, they'd go and say hello before and afterwards. She'd wait for them. And I think to what Amy said there about most people probably knew her voice before they knew what she actually looked like. That was definitely the case for me. And I think that almost created, she was like a mythical figure for for a lot of people, which I don't think is very common in football or any walk of life nowadays, where you can almost see who owns the, the corner shop online in like two minutes. But with that, I think you just bit off an image in your own head of what that person looked like. And it was probably the complete opposite and yeah, I think for me, obviously, um, kind of ran into her at the women's games most often. Um, so at Boromwood and not really had proper conversations, but it was just quite pleasant to say maybe after a game when you're walking through, through the stands to just have a wave. And that was it. I think, again, just as Aim said, like positive experiences whenever you cross paths and it, it didn't have to be a flashy kind of photo opportunity for for someone it could literally just be hi how you doing have a have a nice day and i think that's probably why so many people felt affected by by what happened last week and as amy said as well i'm sure there'd always be a place at arsenal that is maria petri's one of the other thing that i think speaks to me a little bit about what she symbolized as a probably going back in time a little bit, but the Arsenal of the 70s and 80s, well, in English football of that era, let's just say, was not especially inviting and welcoming to people who were outside of that mostly young male, <laughs> little bit of aggression and testosterone variety, and obviously the older men who had been going to football in the years prior who grew up with it. 
But what Maria symbolised was a couple of things, and it was something specific to Arsenal, I think, at that time, particularly in London, where, as a club, it was more welcoming, more inviting and more cosmopolitan than most, not just in London, but across the country, I would suggest. So at that time, you would see more women and girls, probably more families, more diverse faces. And the North London area in that particular time, around the sort of time when she started supporting onwards, 50s, 60s, 70s, there was huge influxes in local communities from places like Cyprus, which is where she was from. There was a lot of Irish. There was a lot of West Indians and and, uh, Africans. There was big communities locally. And they found a home in Arsenal that I don't think they would have found at many other football clubs if they wanted to. So for me, that's something that resonates. You know, Maria represented Arsenal and she found a place for herself there. She did. I mean, just a couple of uh, quotes from people. Adonis, who um, produces this show on occasion, uh, he said that Maria was a huge source of pride for the Gooners in the North London Cypriot community. Alex Scott... BBC presenter, thank you for the love, the passion, the songs and support for us uh, at Arsenal Women's Football Club from the very beginning. We will never forget you, Maria. We love you. And Mikel Arteta said the way she transmitted Arsenal values and the feeling of this football club was something I've never seen before. She was everywhere every single week and she will be missed big time. And I'll leave the last word to her. Maria said, I shall be oh so upset when I die. I won't be able to watch Arsenal anymore. (laughs) Bless her. Rest in peace, Maria Petri. There is a girl from England, me do, me do. She scores the goals from off the wing, me do, me do. The girl does good, we knew she would. She plays the game like she's a fair meet the footballer, plays for Arsenal. James McNicholas, our very own James McNicholas, has been talking to Edu about where the club is heading, the work that had to be done to get us moving in the right direction. There's a long, it's quite a long read piece on the site, which is well worth a look. It's a very in-depth interview, lots of talking points. Let's dive right in. Ah, I'll start with you. There was a thing about the, um, on problem players problems in inverted commas he said basically said try to avoid one more year with a problem inside in the dressing room expensive not performing he said the best thing is clean take it out even i'm sorry if you have to pay to leave is better because that guy is sometimes also blocking someone i consider it an investment obviously those arguments that he's making is getting through to the board are they have been for probably the last two and a half years i'd say yes. uh, when you consider I guess case A would be Mesut Ozil in 2020 and then case B is probably Aubameyang last season. But in the grander scheme, I think you just see they don't really want to waste time. Although there has been time for, say, Arsenal to become properly identifiable on the pitch. I think that term of cleaning the squad, something that Mikel Arteta has used as well beforehand in the public domain. And you just have to look at, say, the difference between his first start at 11 and his current one to see yeah. how big that shift is. If you haven't seen that, <laughs> by the way, listener, I mean, the only two survivors are Saka and Xhaka from that start in 11. Uh, the rest are either in the reserves and on the way out or gone. Mm. And I think with that, you just see where they wanted to be in terms of style of play, most importantly, because that's what at the top of the piece 
Edu's talking about in terms of having a head coach slash manager that you actually understand what they want from their footballers helps massively because if you think back to the late era of under Unai Emery, there was a lot of muddled thinking, I think it's fair to say. And you probably saw that in the recruitment. And I don't think it's a surprise that probably a lot of the players that were brought in that summer, so 2018, are either not here anymore or on the way out. I just think that has been the natural course of the last couple of years. And now you're getting to the point where now they have to own the squad. It's their squad. Now they have to produce with that. So I think, yeah, over the course of time, which I think Arteta probably wouldn't have had if he was at a different club, say if he was at Chelsea, for instance, who appointed Frank Lampard at the same time or similar time, uh, or even Spurs who appointed Jose Mourinho at the same time, he would not have had the same amount of time to to build or to clean that squad. So I think they they kind of <laughs> have to have to own that now and take it in the direction they want to. Well, Edu has basically said that, you know, that now they have to produce. And he, and they talked, he particularly pinpointed this season, Amy, 22-23, as the time when you will start to see the, the fruits of the work they've been doing. But going back to this point that, that what I think was interesting, he said when, when the player, he was talking about these players that you don't particularly want around who are 26-plus, big salary, not performing, but they love living in London. It's all wonderful, and of course they do. But he's saying he's killing you, that kind of player. And when asked by James, how many players with that kind of characteristics did we have in the past? And he said 80% of the squad. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was, oh, my God. Look, I think we have to be honest and look back at that sort of period. I think everybody was under no illusions that even when Arsene left, there was some sort of revamp stroke surgery needed because things had been allowed to drift a little bit. And that was partly a cause of a, essentially a broken relationship between Arsene and Ivan Gazidis. So things just weren't harmonious in terms of team building in the, in the latter era of Wenger. And then there was that crazy spell with Raul and Sven and people who were you know, ideologically completely opposite, trying to cobble something together and, I think that was a really, really difficult period that was supposed to be a new chapter, but ended up probably taking things even more backwards. So when Arteta came in, when you think about it, it's his first job and he's looking at a squad that really needed, if you were going to talk about your ideal scenario, absolutely massive surgery, an almost total overhaul. The big picture is that the unity that Arteta always goes on about it's obviously something that they've constructed to include the manager, the technical director, and the owners in this kind of main hierarchy. And they've all had to sort of probably know that they're going to take a bit of flack along the way and that it's not going to be a very quick transition. But they've committed to that plan. Yeah. And whatever the kind of difficulties along the way, they've not been interested in the external criticism because they believe in their internal plan. And the two things I think are most fascinating are this business of cleaning the squad and it being an investment, as Edu describes it, even though economically it looks like a kind of waste of money and sort of re renaming that, reselling that as an investment, I think has been critical, 
critical. And yeah. I admire the club for doing that because I think they had to do it. Because if you take, you know, the old fashioned approach is you've got a big name player who's earning a massive salary. You want to try and get some money for him. You can't get the money that you want. And it just drags on forever until eventually they leave. And to, to fast track that exit, even if it costs the club some money in the short term, but it's an investment in the long term health of the squad is quite brave and quite unusual. Arsenal, I don't remember kind of more or less ever doing that sort of stuff before. No. The other thing that I think, particularly this summer, is notable. One of the phrases that we would hear a lot about Arsenal for many, many years, almost since the sort of move to the Emirates and the belt tightening began, was we've got to sell before we buy. There was always this sense that Arsenal were not in the position to sort of throw the cash around and it all had to be balanced. Now, if we look at last summer's window, but especially this summer's window, where... Higher spending in Europe so far. In an ideal world, Arsenal would have offloaded and cobbled together 50, 60, 70 million by getting a combination of little bits here and there for you know, Leno, Torreira, Bellerin, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The players that are not inviting substantial bids, let's just say. But instead of sitting there, which they would have done in the past and waiting, they've gone and done their business first. Now, that's a, a new attitude. That's different. And it's what's needed. And I like the fact that they have done that because it goes against sort of previous philosophies. It, they've gambled, they've speculated to accumulate and they're going to obviously get back as much as they can set against the outlay, but they're sort of prepared for the outlay anyway, rather than waiting to get some money in before they figure out how they're going to spend it. And it had to be that way because otherwise the quality of player that has come in would not have come in. I think the key point it's talked about in the piece are clarity, there appears to be clarity. This is almost the first time, a bit like you said, Amy, since we moved to the Emirates, there does seem to be a much clearer strategy now. We bought in the young players last year, all under 23 years old. Now we've added, as he said, a couple of killers, uh, people <laughs> who've won trophies, uh, Alexander Sinchenko and, uh, and Gabriel Jesus. And... There seems to be a clear strategy, and that comes back to the point you said. They have to own it, but the point is they want to own it, don't they? They they actually want to stand up and say, yeah, this is what we're doing. Judge us on this. Well, definitely, even when with Amy's point on buying first rather than selling, I think that was massive because you can't really go into a season like you did, say, even, even last year where a lot of their major business so you think of Martin Erdegaard for instance and Takehiro Tomiyasu they didn't actually come in until maybe two games into the season maybe three so making sure you've got your actual main targets through the door for that first game of the season weeks before the first game of the season is imperative because you can't really afford to have another start where you're <laughs> you're nine points behind again so I feel like Actually taking that first step forward has been major this this summer. And to the point of clarity, I think you've seen that throughout their time here, but it's just, it didn't really work at first. <laughs> you, you saw it as it is mentioned in the piece with David Louise and Willian. They were clear on why they brought them in, but the they thinking was wrong. They were clear on why. They were clear on why yeah. they brought them in. And I and when I read the piece, I actually thought, you know what? I see that. It's just, it didn't work it out. Didn't certainly work. didn't work out with Willian and, and, <laughs> no. and David Luiz. It's debatable, as he always is. Uh, but again, that is strategy. But 
Amy, I'll ask you about this because we're talking about spending money and there's another piece, a, a, short, a shorter piece on The Athletic about the Cronkers who they've bought in to Arteta and Edu uh, as well, haven't they? Uh, Josh particularly, since he's now basically taken over the club. And, you know, we had this discussion a few weeks ago on the podcast. I, th- I think one has to give them a certain amount of credit. I know they've loaned the money to the club and, we, and we're and we not quite sure on what terms, but apparently they're favourable. But we have to give them credit for spending the sort of money that we thought we needed to spend in order to get back up to where we want to be. It's such a fascinating and complicated relationship, if you like, the whole Arsenal and Cronkies vibe. You know, when you go back to the start and you go go really rewinding to Peter Hillwood saying, we don't want that sort over here and the kind of negativity at the beginning. And then probably the worst period of all was the years of stasis when Usmanov and the Cronkies were locked in and because neither had enough control, the club just couldn't couldn't make that extra push because the Cronkies didn't want to didn't want to go in wholeheartedly while Usmanov had 30%. It was such a difficult period. And then of course you have the negativities of things like the, the Super, Super League, League. Yeah. which was a massive red mark. But I think on the other hand, they were a bit misguided in the start by just saying like, here we go, we'll just carry on with the self-sustaining model and we're going to let these guys run it because they didn't have the right guys running it. They've obviously got different guys now calling the shots. And I still think their fundamental attitude is, you know, we want to let people who are best qualified run it. But they've also got probably a bit more oversight, which I think is important. They've recognised that they made a mistake at the start by just letting it go. But I I definitely think it's quite hard. Even Some people will forever be anti-cronky or cronky out because they took a position and they're never going to change in that position, even if Arsenal win the Champions League. I don't suddenly see people turning around who are hardcore in their views and going the other way. But I think slowly and surely more and more people just by looking at their acts, it's quite hard to find too much fault in yeah. them as owners recently. Like They apologised no. for the Super League thing. They've helped the club financially to get players in that probably wouldn't have come in otherwise. Uh, and they're giving it a good go. And I think it also helps in terms of the optics that they've been successful with some of their American teams as well. So, you know, I think the image for a long time was, ah, they're always in, they're always mediocre. You know, the cronky teams are always middle of the road. They don't, they just do do enough. They don't do, you know, they don't go for it. But they've obviously stepped up in going for it across some of their franchises. So yeah. we'll see. We will see. We will see. You're absolutely right, Amy. We will. I think, you know, from Arteta and Eddie's point of view, they probably couldn't be asking for an awful lot more at the moment, realistically. I do feel that Josh might actually start, sort of start to be a fan of the club, really, I think. He is a fan of the club. If you ever get the chance to meet him, he definitely is. But I think that 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 stuff's important. Because he's a similar age and mindset to Edu and Arteta, they've sort of connected in a way that wouldn't have been possible if it was Stan with Edu and Arteta. There's a kind of dynamism between the, those guys who are, are, are young and wanting to make it all happen. They might not see eye to eye on absolutely every single thing, but I think they're trying their damnedest. 
the fact that we have so many ex-players now uh, involved in the running of the club, Edu Arteta, Jack Wilshire's coaching at the under-18s, Per Mertesacker is is running the academy. These guys are ex-players, but it seems to me they're fans of the club as well, and and maybe there is that connection and they've sort of... They've sort of fed that a little bit to Josh. I think also, Art, one more thing before we move on. I think the fans themselves, I'm talking about me and Amy here particularly for going to that demonstration against the Super League. I think we must take some credit uh, for maybe (laughs) showing them our passion and how much this club means to us. And I get the feeling that they're starting, the Cronkers, I mean, particularly Josh, are really starting to feel that. Well, that's the main point. I think the baggage is never just going <laughs> to magically disappear. It's always going to be there for not just people who do almost take a more, I guess, positive view on them, but for everyone. I think the baggage has to be there for, for them as well as the fans, because otherwise they'd have no idea what to improve. And I think, yes, it's okay that there are improvements, but you can't just say, okay, that's going to be for, for one summer or for two summers. It has to be consistent and i think from the, a fan perspective there is always that <laughs> high pressure high demand and i think that should serve well in terms of just driving that consistency because if if they don't see consistent improvements they will let people know it doesn't always have to be like that demonstration at the emirates after the super league stuff happened but they will let people know so i think having that there as I'm not sure what to call it but just as a reminder you won't keeping them honest yeah keeping them basically. honest is what it is um and that hey that's where the fans uh need to uh step up let's just keep them on their toes hey because uh we want a successful club more than anyone uh Amy I want to ask you briefly about William Saliba he's played well out in America, he's looked like a false. Uh, I was going to say the kid. He's he's only twenty one years old. Will he be first choice centre back going into the new season? And who would he partner? Well, considering the number of days till the start of the season, I think probably a, it's quite likely because Tomiyasu probably won't be match fit. So Ben White will play on. out on the right. And, well, that uh, that that four had a had a nice look to it, didn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah. Even though they weren't overly tested by um, pretty hilariously mediocre Chelsea the other night. Uh, <laughs> but it thing, was great, wasn't it? By the way, <laughs> the thing that's great about Saliba is to take the old like a new signing principle. This is like like a new signing extra <laughs> because it's a it's a very very odd thing that he's been an Arsenal player technically for a couple of years or whatever it is and yet to have a single minute in the shirt for real in a competitive match so when you're looking at our squad improvements you know the whole idea this summer was to get in players who were going to make Arsenal better you know you've got Gabriel Jesus at the top spinally you've got Zinchenko who is perfectly capable in midfield or all playing at the back if necessary. And you've got Saliba (laughs) coming in at the back. That's three high-quality players, quite apart from Marquinhos and Vieira and people who who I think there's obviously optimism that they will come in and improve and and play a part. So I think from that sense of like, I always think having a a strong spine is is the foundation for everything. If I was going to be... Really, really nitpicky, I'd say, for the summer to be kind of full dream mode, I'd like another centre forward. 
because I don't think that Gabriel Nketia for a whole season is enough. You and Adrian feels the same way, by the way. Adrian Clark yep. has said that on here. <laughs> yep. But I think Martinelli could be the third forward and he looks sharp as well. Yeah, but, but I get it. He still does most of his work, you know, out, out wide. So we'll see. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm talking about three major options. We, we've got five substitutes now that are usable. There's going to be a lot of things that you can do. It's going to be players that two games a week with Europe. Uh, it's going to be fatigue, there's going to be pressure, there's going to be a World Cup in the middle of this season and so on and so forth. And I think having another established centre-forward as part of the group would be uh, fantastic. And also one more centre-mid on the assumption that Zinchenko might end up being played quite a lot on the left would be my dream scenario, sort of physical presences to, you know, to add a little bit more to those departments. But, I mean, particularly at the back, the back has been utterly transformed since, you know, when you think of the Mustafi, Socrates, David Louise <laughs> axis of uh, <laughs> leap. Licksteiner, by the way, can I add in there? <laughs> so, yes, quite. One other thing that was in this piece that James wrote on Saka, how's it going with the contract negotiations? Good, very good. Everybody is happy. That would be a big signing for us as well, would it not? Oh, God, obviously. I mean, that would be something that everyone would celebrate. But just going back to Saliba briefly, uh, yeah. Just I've just got this niggly thing in the back of my mind that I want the transfer window to finish and for Saliba and Gabriel to still both be there. Yeah. There has been talk about Gabriel uh, possibly interest from other clubs. I mean, I very much hope that any bids for those players are swiftly rejected, but... It's just one of those things where if, if, if there does need some balancing of books to happen, whether one of those ends up, you know, because I think they'll both be popular elsewhere. Uh, and I really, really hope that doesn't happen. Oh, like I say, I've heard about Gabriel and there's a possibility of other clubs being interested. But this whole Brazilian thing and Portuguese speaking thing going on at Arsenal, he's not going to find that in many places, is he? Well, I think, don't want to say this too lightly, but... Anyone who would be thinking of, say, if it was on Gabriel's side or Arsenal's side, I think you'd be quite stupid to to, to leave yes. at the minute. I think the way Gabriel grew throughout last season, even I remember speaking to Rob Holden after the West Ham game where I think they both scored headers. <laughs> and he said that Gabriel had really grown as someone in the dressing room who was viewed as their kind of rock. And I think you really saw that in not just how he defended last year, but obviously he stepped up massively in terms of goal scoring too. If you're looking at a centre-back partnership, I think him and Saliba have worked really well um, this summer. When there have been moments where maybe Gabriel's a little loose, Saliba's been right there to back him up. And what I've been probably most impressed by with Saliba is he's not really been flashy, but he's just looked really assured in everything he's done. I think... We saw how valuable having someone like that was with uh, Tommy Asu last season, someone who you can just rely rely on to do their job. And I think Saliba's brought that so far in preseason, obviously. The intensity of the games will increase massively when the season properly kicks off. But as a pair, they look very good. And also, it just means that the, the level is raised for Ben White also, just having that competition there, you know that you can't drop off a single level because you're going to have William Saliba there waiting for your place. 
Well, you, you'd like to think the training would be more intense as well. Gabriel, Gabriel Jesus giving them uh, uh, all sorts of difficulties in training. That'll make them better at the weekend. Yeah, uh, all very positive. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Oh, I wanted to briefly ask you about Arsenal women players at the Euros. Leah Williamson, Beth Mead, Lottie Woodman-Moy uh, going up against the fellow Guna, Stina Blackstenius, on Tuesday night's Euro semi-final, which I believe you're going to. Is that right? Are you going to I that one? I think I'm actually going to the other one. <laughs> you're going to? <laughs> oh, I... okay. You're going to the other one. <laughs> but, oh, no, because obviously the I'll... trains might be more difficult as well. We don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be, oh my God, I I really dread thinking about it. But I'll still be watching the England one, of course. <laughs> and I think yeah. either way, there's going to be Arsenal representation in the final. So that'll be quite nice. In terms of Arsenal's representation in the semi-final, I think England obviously have Leah Williamson and Beth Mead, who will probably be starting. And yeah. they're probably, I think Beth Mead's, been one of my players of the tournament. Um, obviously, going back a year, she wasn't even in the uh, Team GB Olympic squad and she just took that into her season with Arsenal and hasn't really looked back since. And now I think she's on five goals for the Euros so far. England didn't have the best game against Spain in the quarterfinals, Spain, but I think... Spain were the better team for a lot of that yeah. game, but uh, but England got some fight, actually. They've got some fight yeah. in the team. And I, I think from the start against Sweden, I, I just expect Beth Mead to, to hit the ground running again. And it should be a really, really intense game, but um, hopefully an enjoyable one as well. And Jonas Edeval, um being the star pundit of the tournament. Was that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that a shock to you? He, I mean, he knows. He's really good. I mean, every time you spoke yeah. to him, every interview I've read, he really comes across. And uh, it's not really surprising that he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad like the whole country's been able to see what he's about basically because yeah yeah when you when you do talk to him even if it's like in a press conference setting and you're kind of on that level of comfort he, he's very very good with his answers not just giving you a, a kind of stock answer he actually thinks about the question and then yes has a really well thought out answer and you've seen throughout throughout the tournament the level of detail he thinks about football, and I just feel like it's it's great that um, say the average person who probably doesn't really wasn't really watching not even just Arsenal but the WSL last season have been able to kind of tap into his knowledge because he is someone who I, I feel has been a great addition to to English women's football. Quite. Um, let's have a song before we finish. Um, Amy, you know mine is going to be stupidly optimistic. Uh, you know that because I'm a stupid optimist, but uh, I'd like to think I share that with Maria, to be honest with you. <laughs> but um, what about you, Art? Mine, again, same as last week, has no real reason behind it other than there's now an account on Twitter that posts the closing credits to cartoons and... <laughs> 
Uh, of course there is. <laughs> and, of course there is, yeah. Why wouldn't there be? And the other day they posted um, the closing credits for the Powerpuff Girls, which is unreal. So I'm going to go with that and I'm going to use it under the guise that I'm going to say is to encourage the England women's team for the semifinals. But I just really like the song. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. I'm just, you know, I don't know what that is, but um, you don't know what the Powerpuff Girls is. No, I don't. Oh, oh my I'm, god, I'm older than you by quite a considerable amount of time. Oh, Let me tell that you. is shocking. Well, I'll listen. You send me the website, and if I can work out how to use the internet, I'll check it out, as the kids would say. I'm having, by the way, moving on up by Primal Screen because, of course, it's a positive song. And I do like to think positively, but uh, there's something going on at Arsenal at the moment. And I feel like we may well be moving on up uh, as a club. So uh, that's what I'm having. Uh, what's yours, Amy? A little song to finish for us? Blondie, Maria. <laughs> of course, <laughs> you know, of course. Lovely, lovely. We're done for this week. Thank you to Abby, our producer. Thank you to Art and Amy. Uh, 11 days to go. The countdown has more than begun, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, I'm Ian Stone. See you soon. Hold up. 